Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Derhage. Welcome, a very special guest, uh, Rencia Mellis. So, Rencia, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much, Roxanne. How are you? Good, good. Rencia and I have uh, had the privilege of working together uh, for an, uh, a national company uh, that started off relatively uh, small uh, in, the, in the EAP world, which is employee assistance world. So I'll tell you a little bit about Rencia and how we're going to spend our time today. Uh, she has a master's and she's the founder of Inte Integral Workplace Health. Uh, she's a certified psychological health and safety advisor, and she brings well over uh, more than 20 years at this point, uh, managing and designing international support programs. Uh, she's collaborated with multinationals and Fortune 500 employers um, and introduced and implemented successful employee supports for global wo workforce. Uh, she's passionate about mental health in the workplace, and as you know uh, from my previous podcast, it's something that I speak about often. It's my background, and it's something that I really, truly believe that we need to talk more about. Um, over her career, she's published and presented internationally on a wide range of employee support topics, including leveraging the workplace uh, for health, global trauma support, which we'll talk a bit about today, mental health and employee liability, and she, her MA is in social psychology from the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. This I did not know. Well, yes, that's part of my global interest and background. The bicultural piece is part of my driver. Awesome. So what's, what, what uh, I wanted to discuss today was just the element of mental well-being and mental health uh, in the space that we're in uh, today. And... Um, obviously, like we've been talking about this uncertain time, mental well-being is something that a space that uh, Renzi and I both live in um, for most of our career. But in the pandemic, to also talk about what are some of the implications for people returning to work now that we're in that tiered stage to return to work. So Renzi, um, so let's, let's chat a little bit about um, what we're going to talk about uh, today. And then what we're going to do is we're going to start off by uh, doing a bit of a poll because what this poll is going to do is to give us a sense of uh, what people um, who is with us and kind of uh, some of the things that we could answer in reference to the polls so Rancid, tell us a little bit about uh, return to work um, now in this uncertain crisis oriented time well, that's a really good uh, thing because it's very uh, uh, in the news right now, and many people are thinking about it as things are starting to open up. The return to work has become very complex because even though the lockdown was something that affected, I think it's something like 2.6 billion people around the globe, people individually have experienced that differently. They may have been uh, very lonely at home. They may have been, you know, just overcrowded at home with too many people in the house and not being able to get away. Uh, so the return to work is quite complex because people have anxiety and concerns about being safe, going back to the workplace. Uh, people uh, may be so fatigued 
from being careful that they may not want to uh, comply with some of the things that need to be put into place in the workplace. And they're bringing back with them into that workplace what they went through. I think people, when, when you have something like the COVID hit and with the lockdown, people just do what they have to do. And it's not until things start to ease up and start to look kind of normal again that people um, start to think about what just happened mm -hmm. and what does that mean for me and what did I learn and what, you know, how has this affected me? And so it will be very unique for different people. Some of them are just going to be really happy to be out of the house, to be able to resume some kind of normal uh, strategy or normal routine. Um, whereas others may re remain very anxious about leaving the house. They may be anxious about getting to work, maybe not about being at work, but about getting to work. Um, they may still have worries about economic uh, survival, um, you know, and the security of the company. And they may be carrying unresolved grief and loss. Uh, they may have gone through COVID. They may have been infected and, you know, being alone somewhere on a ventilator and needing to process that. Because in the search situation of high pressure, people just do what they have to do. People are phenomenally resilient. And it's not until things start to go back to quiet and normal-ish that people often catch up and start processing. So they're, they're taking that with them as well, as well as the uncertainty about the future. What's happening is that most people go into crises. Um, you know, everybody was kind of uh, thinking, what do I have to do to make this adjustment? and they kind of parked their emotions related to what they were experiencing. And now that we're kind of into the stage two of things, now where people are starting to kind of, you know, talk a little bit more about, you know, how anxious they are, or, um, you know, really a lot of concerns that they probably had all along, but yeah. they had kind of just, you know, put aside. And now we're hearing people openly talk about um, how, you know, they're concerned about for their children's safety and they're concerned um, just going to, you know, I, we, I know the grocery store is always a place that people worry, but, yeah. you know, how deathly um, scared a lot of people are, you know, just to get out there in the community. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, like, and we talked about this when we were, you know, we were kind of talking this through beforehand, Roxanne, there's kind of a, a, a graph or kind of a, a you know, a path that people go through in these kind of situations, because this is really the equivalent of a disaster or a huge large scale trauma. And what people go through initially is you're right, they suspend, they kind of go into this um, hero phase. And you know, we saw this when the lockdown just started, you know, the memes were lots of fun. Everybody was, hey, yay, this is unusual. We're going to deal with this. We can do this. We're going to put our home concerts online, whatever. So everybody was very optimistic about being able to cope and move forward. And they also have kind of this phase where they have this sense of reconnecting. You know, I'm sure people have experienced that where suddenly they heard from people they hadn't heard from from a long time. And so there was this kind of, we're in this together, you know, so many people around the world, you know, you're talking to people in other places that you may not have talked to, people from other times that you're talking to. So there's also then this phase of, look, this is, we're all in this together. And then people get tired because they can only be in that place for so long. And then they kind of slide down into fatigue and disillusionment. There's so many, so many times that you can sing Bohemian Rhapsody online and be thrilled by it, right? And then <laughs> to go back to normal because then it's all about you know trying to get work done while your kids you know in the corner trying to crawl onto your lap or 
trying to get work done when you can't connect with the person that you need to talk to to make a decision. Um, so this then people get start to get worn down. And what's really unique about the, the COVID situation is normally when people go through such large scale traumatic events, they can rebuild because then they know what they need to do. What's what's really different and making these you know escalating this, the mental health concerns that people have is that they remain in, in uncertainty. They don't know how to rebuild because there may be a second wave. They don't know if their company is gonna survive. Um, they, they're still looking at how to assess risks. So all those things in terms of rebuilding the new normal, even that is something that may not last. And that also kind of affects people, people's resilience to be able to keep moving forward optimistically. Uncertainty, I would say, is what we want to get into a little bit. So I'm going to ask you now, um, we're going to, for everybody that's uh, tuned in, uh, thank you again for coming on, but we have a poll that we're going to uh, put up right now. If you take a couple of seconds just to answer this, what this will allow Renzi and I to do is to understand who is with us and how we could uh, uh, potentially know what are some of the concerns are. So um, Patricia, if you can uh, do that poll, that'd be fantastic. So. In, in kind of looking at uh, some of the results that will come up in a second, what we'll be able to do is to look at um, what strategies people actually have in place in their companies. And also, uh, you know, is, does it save money or does it cost money? Because that's really the perspective that uh, we hear companies talking about, like whose responsibility is it for mental well-being and how much responsibility is it of the individual and how much of it is actually of the employers. So, so Roxanne, we are showing some results, I think. Okay, and so I'm not seeing the results just yet. Can you see them, Rencia? I'm seeing, yes, I'm seeing that. Do you have a mental health strategy in place for return to work? Of the people online, 100% are saying no, they do not. And um, what I do say, and this is very encouraging, uh, investing in mental health is seen as a cost saver not as a cost okay, center. Fantastic. So that's really great. So that's fantastic. So people are actually, so what we're saying is they know they need to do it. However, they don't have it, which is quite fascinating. I, I actually thought we'd probably see like a 50-50 of people yeah. actually having a strategy. Now, is that what you see globally with companies? Uh, well, I, there's two things to that. There's traditionally people have what they call a mental health strategy which is basically a strategy that allows people to go fix themselves. So they will have some form of benefit where people can have access to psychotherapy or where they have, for instance, EAP uh, available for people. And so that's a strategy that is all about, okay, well, you're stressed out, go fix yourself. Um, what people rarely have is a mental health strategy around return to work around addressing the psychological issues that people may have. And that's looking, that means that you need to look at your organization itself. You know, there's been a lot of uh, interest in the media lately in, the, in this whole discussion about return to work, about uh, safety, psychological safety in the workplace. And companies often don't have that because for psych to create psychological safety where somebody can be in the workplace, express themselves, um, you know, uh, be, for instance, let people know, you know, I'm really struggling, I'm very anxious, or I need to pull out of this meeting because I can't manage it or whatever. Um, or I'm making mistakes because I'm really distracted, worrying about my grandmother who's dying, and, you know. Um, 
there's usually not a strategy around that. So there may be some benefits in place, but truly integrating it in your thinking in terms of how do I make decisions? How do I put resources together? How do I treat people? That strategy is often lagging. And that is one that is really, really important now that people are coming back. And one of the, one of the main reasons why people are having difficulty and often refusing to come back to work has to do with not the physical, but the anxiety, the depression, and the, the things that they're, the, the psychological factors of returning to work. So really, the duty of a look at their demographics, potentially the types of positions they have. Um, let's assume that everybody's coming back with a certain level of anxiety, because you have to have some anxiety when there's uncertainty. And if, if, if there's a rare few that don't, that's interesting. But we know that generally, as human beings, we need certainty, right? We need yeah. to kind of have a sense that we can gauge where things are going to go. And we know that that's not going to be the case going back to work. So what we're being told is that most people don't have a mental health strategy. No. Why, do you think, why do you think that is? Because psychological safety is a standard here across Canada. It's something that employers uh, obviously need to, to be aware of and implement. Well, why would you think that most companies don't have a mental health strategy? I think there's a number of different things that contribute to why people don't do that. And, and people often think that the mental health strategy means providing for people that have been diagnosed with mental illness. So often um, that is one of the reasons that they think they have it. They often don't realize because you mentioned the standard. Um, you know, Canada is really a world leader with the National Standard for Psychological Health and Safety in the Workplace. And that's also being used as a template by the ILO um, for their global standard that they're developing for psychological health and safety in the workplace. What is a new way of thinking? Is thinking about mental health in terms of what, what is the responsibility of the employer? My responsibility is more than just making sure that the employee can go fix themselves. And that's a whole shift in thinking in terms of looking at what am I doing in the workplace that's affecting people? Am I the one because of the way that I treat people, because of the way that we distribute work? And so people are often very anxious about that because that seems to be like a really huge undertaking. It doesn't have to be, but it means that organizations and the individuals, the leaders, need to have some level of self-awareness um, around what's going on with themselves, what examples they're setting, and um, what that means for the people cascading down the line. And that can be very difficult for people. I think that is one of the main reasons um, that people don't implement like a, a wider psychological health and safety or mental health strategy. Because really leadership needs to be a role model. They need to role model, uh, you know, whether it's as basic as wearing a mask, um, to social distancing or some of the physical stuff, but also psychological safety to your point. Um, if I'm anxious and I'm not able to articulate that to say my staff, who knows I'm anxious and could tell that I'm, you know, because they get to, obviously we work with people, we get to know them. But if I'm acting like nothing's wrong, but all my energy coming off me shows that I'm anxious and I'm maybe a little bit more quick or quick or quick to decision without looking at different perspectives, Absolutely. then how does that impact the people around me? Because obviously they're feeling anxious. They're, they're reading my energy. And what state does that put the, you know, this, the teams into and then in turn the organization? Um, and ultimately the, the concept that I've heard a lot is that 
they really don't care. I don't think they don't care. Nobody purposely goes out and says, I don't care. Mm -hmm. um, I think they really do. But I think there's a lot of anxiety. I used to do a lot of manager consultations as well, right? And supporting, and I still do manager consultations. One of the biggest things there is the, the personal anxiety of people. Because this, and this is really your thing, uh, Roxanne, mm -hmm. talking about being authentic, uh, talking about being transparent, uh, and, and those parts of, lead, that is true leadership to be able to do that, to have humility as a, as a leader. That can be very anxiety provoking for people. You know, there's a lot of pressure for people to perform. And then when we talk about the cost saver, cost, uh, cost center thing, people often are very worried that they're not going to make their numbers if they, if they, you know, if they stop for a second or if they stop to be authentic, that it's going to give people permission to, you know, slack off because they're not feeling well. And it takes a lot of courage to be authentic and to be transparent. And so that, that is, I think it's more fear than that people don't care. Absolutely. And I think that's what maybe when employees are disconnected, that's the perception of their leadership. Because the, if the leader and their team and their executive team are unaware and they're filtering that down, not with their unresolved um, capacity, then in the front line or the middle and employees are perceiving it as a lack of caring but sometimes it's oftentimes not a lack of caring from you and I being in the you know employee assistance world for years yeah. what we know is a lot of times and I did management consultations you know across my portfolio east to west coast and the one thing without a doubt and I'm sure you've done that globally too is that people were often uh, were managers and they potentially were managers for sometimes you know upwards of 35 40 years and they're calling us to do a management consultation because they don't know how to deal any with anything personally related. Um, so when is it, you know, I'm, I'm okay with performance management and progressive discipline and, you know, going by the, you know, the union agreement, all those things. But as soon as it steps into anything personal, then they absolutely kind of cut off because they go, oh, no, I'll send you to a professional. But the, the standard is showing us that really what we need is we need heightened skills um, in our leadership from middle management all the way to the top because the more aware I'm, a, if, if I'm aware of what my blockages are in leadership, if, I, if I'm aware of what my leadership story is, so mine is, in, is about honesty and integrity and having everybody um, have a voice, well, working through that and understanding what are my core values um, as a leader allows me to step forward. And when I feel out of control or a bit vulnerable, um, you know, I'm not suggesting that the leader, um, you know, be so vulnerable that they're not caring for themselves, but they need to be able to show that human element so others can connect with them. Yeah, absolutely. And that works across cultures. It creates trust uh, with employees and, it, and the authenticity binds people because now that mm -hmm. the, the time, it means that you also care for the, for the people around you. Um, but if before COVID, the, you know, there was research done because everybody talks about empathy and you need to have empathy and you need to have that empathic conversation. And even before that, there was research coming out that the majority of managers are not trained for that. They don't know how to do that. It's a real challenge. And in 2016, PricewaterhouseCoopers, they do an annual, um, an annual global CEO survey and it's always around different things. And in 2016, one of the biggest concerns that was identified by the um, 
global CEOs, and I'm just I'm really around the globe and, you know, thousands of people that they talk to, one of their biggest challenge was to find people with the right soft skills. They're having no problem finding who can, somebody who can be agile, IT, or whatever. What they're looking for are people with the right soft skills. And their, their other concern is in terms of retention and attracting talent, they recognize that they need to meet the need from, from employees. There's a new generation of employees that really want to be acknowledged with, you know, with all their warts and, and scars and their whole human that they bring to the workplace. They don't walk through the door to the workplace and then suddenly transform into employees. They come in as a human being and they remain human being with all their foibles and whatever else. And they want to be recognized for that and they want to have space for that. And, um, you know, the global CEOs, they're, they're the top leaders. They're very aware of that. And this is one of their biggest challenges for their, for their businesses to be successful, to find those people and to find a way within their organization to meet that, that need of these different employees. So let's talk about steps for um, anyone listening that wants to develop a mental health strategy. So, okay, I'm going to say that most people have benefits, right? Yeah. They have some psychological benefits. They have an EAP program. Maybe they have an occupational uh, nurse, uh, potentially. Maybe, maybe a wellness committee might be a little bit, you know, um, uh, in development. Or maybe they have an, an ad hoc. But what are some basic things that people should start implementing in order to um, start a, creating a policy, a mental health policy, and specifically now um, to return to work? What are some things that people should be considering? Okay. I think the first thing is know, your, know thyself. So you need to understand where your employees are. You need to know where you are. And, you know, and this, you can do that by having some stakeholder conversations, by looking at your stats, your absenteeism stats, by looking at your uh, maybe a satisfaction survey to understand where things are. And this is particularly relevant. See, these things are already in place with organizations that have a level of, of, of mental health awareness and mental health strategy. Uh, so, and I don't think anybody is starting from point zero. Everybody has like the seed there. So it's about looking at what do I have and how can I grow that? The irony of course, is that organizations that have not done well, um, throughout the pandemic and taken care of with people and not understood um, what was necessary to keep those people that uh, engaged, to keep those people, um, you know, loyal to the organization. Those, those organizations are the ones that need it most and that are paradoxically are going to have the hardest time establishing a trusted strategy. Um, and so one of the first things I think you need to do is, like I said, know yourself and own it. That's the first thing. If you realize that, you know, we've not done this ideally, um, if leadership can say, you know what, and we, and we talked about this, uh, Roxanne, as well amongst ourselves, that it's difficult to do, but to understand the value of investing in your employees is one, and then owning and saying, you know what, we didn't do a great job. Don't pretend you did a great job when you know you didn't and that you've alienated people. Just say, you know what, we didn't. We're learning, we're growing. We want to do it differently. We want to hear from you. Or this is what we're going to do differently. And so that is that, that owner, taking that ownership and that humility is a huge step towards proving that you really mean it and creating some trust with people. 
and then looking at what's going on in my organization. You can, and you can understand some of these things um, going forward by looking at what are the likely scenarios that have played out with my people. Um, were they at home? Do I have primarily uh, young people with young families? Well, then you can kind of predict that if they were working from home, they had their kids at home and that may have been very stressful for them. Um, so these are things that you want to think about. Like, what is that? What may that mean for them going forward? Do you have people that were furloughed? What does that mean in terms of the anxiety that they may have had um, about their economic security? And you need to be honest with them. So it comes still back to like that honesty. There is no um, one thing that you can do. It's not like you can open up, you know, a can of psychological health and safety. Really, it starts with knowing yourself and taking ownership of where you want to go and what you've done. And I'm going to implement something and not understand what your employees are needing. It's kind of like uh, you might be addressing some of the needs to, for some of the people, but you know, when you're looking at, so you said like town halls or um, asking the people that are, that are left that did, that had to go to the office. Let's say you had a certain percentage of your population that had to go to work. And I've heard about that. Some people are like, I'm so happy I'm home. And then other people are like, why do they get to stay home and I have to go to work? Yeah. So there's a lot of dissension that was already developing there. And like to your point, and I know in our, our roles and in my role as an executive for years, I, when there were, were disasters, we called in teams. So I want to talk a little bit about that and we, a bit about the concept of the pandemic and, um, you know, how is it that we need to start to think about um, the world of work uh, from that perspective? And I think, Samsa, you were talking a little bit about that, about the crisis model um, and what that mentality has done for us as, as globally um, and as a nation. And what are some of the things that employers really have to start to think about? Because we're going we're, we're gonna to get through this, but yeah. I think we have to almost create different policies now. We will. Well, there are a lot of things. That it has, it's, it's opened up a lot of awareness around gaps. For instance, around the refusal to work. What traditionally has not been covered in terms of people, you know, certainly in Canada and Ontario, have the right to refuse to work in a dangerous environment. What that doesn't cover is I get my workplace is clean and we're doing shifts. We're doing everything the way we were supposed to, but I need to get on the subway with a bunch of protesters who refuse to wear a mask. So can I now say I'm not going to come to work because I have no way of getting safely to the workplace. So there are certainly in policies and mental health policies and return to work policies. Um, there needs to be, there are a lot of, formal things that need to be thought out about how are we going to respond to this? How are you going to respond to somebody who is having a hard time coming back to work because they have an underlying condition that puts them at higher risk so that if they catch it by going out on the subway to get to work, or if they catch it in the workplace, um, what does that mean? What is the liability for employees uh, or employers if they catch it in the workplace or if somebody is not following the rules and they're not wiping down the keyboard in between two people using it. So there's a lot of gaps that need to be filled around that um, in the workplace and that need to be looked at. And so there's, there's, that's one thing that's, that's happening. And there was something else, Roxanne, and I need to go back to your original question uh, because I, I kind of got sidetracked on the subway. 
Well, I think I just that the fact is that, that we have to create a lot, a lot of new policies for future for to look at we are living in an in a uncertain time. And these uncertainties, we may wrap it up with COVID at some point. But I think this is a new day where employers will have to start to think from a crisis model perspective to have policy in place for future for psychological safety that we haven't thought about. Like to your point, you know, traveling into Toronto and I would, you know, you know, in a crowded beer rail and, and a subway. And I, if I'm concerned and I'm, let's say at that point I was pregnant and, and I'm worried about being pregnant on a train, um, going to work and I, something happens to myself or my baby, there's going to be implications. So there's a lot more things for employers to think about. Absolutely. And these yeah. are things, but starting with the basics to your point, yeah. you know, what are your employees going through? Um, what are you, how are, what are you experiences experiencing as the employer? Um, and what are your teams going through? Um, I think that's a good beginning point and to recognize that 20% and I often think, and then maybe the, the numbers have changed that 20% of your base is going to cost you the same money. And these are the people that don't take the time off. And these are the people that show up at work every single day, but they are giving you depleted or decreased productivity around 65 to 75%. And you know, that term is presenteeism. How is presenteeism then going to be impacted in this new world? Where will that, what would that number look like will be an interesting number for us to look at. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's two things that I would, would mention about, you know, this moving forward and add to what you're saying, Roxanne, is one, that employers are going to need to understand, you know, every, we're all, we're very fixated on best practice. And you can establish best practice if you know what you don't know and you can figure it out. But the, the, with the COVID and with the uncertainty that we have, they need to understand <laughs> that the best they can do is going to be good practice for what's working right now and or emergent practice. They're going to need to develop new things because there are things that they know they don't know that they need to learn about. And there are things that they don't even know that they don't know about it because of the way things developing. And so they need to shift their expectations a bit and be flexible to respond and keep the finger on the pulse because in these circumstances where nothing is set in stone and we don't know what lies ahead, um, you can't expect best practice. It, it will be a, an ongoing investment. And then the other thing I wanted to say to you that, that is, you know, I always talk about the definition of mental health and that mental health is not the opposite of not being sick, not having mental illness. So a lot of the mental health strategies that organizations have around diagnosable or diagnosed um, illness whereas what we're talking about is in that presenteeism somebody who's not able to cope who's not having good feelings about work or about life or about that doesn't mean they have an illness it just means that they're not productive they can't contribute they're not experiencing the sense of community all those things that go into mental health they're, they're not functioning well in the world around them they're not connected to the world around them, and they're not having those positive feelings of well-being that are part of mental health. And you can have that, at that while you're also diagnosed with a mental illness. But you can have, you can lack that without actually being diagnosed. And I think that's another shift that people need to take a broader, um, a broader perspective and understanding. Certainly with the presenteeism, that there are going to be people. No, they're not diagnosed, and they don't have a DSM label. But you know what? They're there, but they don't care. They can't invest. 
they're, they're fatigued, they're dealing with grief, um, they're dealing with anxiety, and that can affect, and you need to address that. You need to give them a platform, and you need to make sure that you're not adding to it or escalating it by the way you're doing things in the workplace. So we had a question asked, which was, how is it that an employer will know if their employees are having a tough time? Ah, well, your stats, part of it, people often know about these things just by observing, right? Because people yeah. change. So there's on the micro level, there is, people are different than they were before, right? So you can see, uh, you know, when, you know, when you do manager consultations and managers come in and say, you know, I'm worried about Joe, um, what do I do? One of the first things you say is, well, what, what are you seeing? You know, because Joe, if there's a recurring pattern and Joe have changed, uh, you know, in how they express themselves, maybe they can't regulate their emotions the way they used to, maybe they participate less or more in certain events, uh, maybe they don't show up, they're not punctual. So there's all kinds of signs on a micro level for an individual that makes you, makes the, make the manager aware that, hey, you know what, this person is not in the right place. They're not functioning the way that we're used to having them participate or speak up or whatever. So that's one that's on a micro level. And I think on a, on a larger level, you really want to be looking at your, your team spirit. You're looking at um, uh, outcomes, productivity outcomes. You're looking at disability stats. Um, and you can look at those different things, perhaps complaints. There's all kinds of indicators when things are not going well because it leads to conflict, it, it leads to reduced productivity, it leads to absenteeism. And so those are all the kind of things that you can look at as indicators of, you know, is my population working the way they used to? Has something changed? And, does, what, and maybe it's one particular team because they, they were the ones that had to go in and do the cleaning. Um, you know, and do frontline work, whereas your, you know, your finance people and your HR are all sitting at home, but you're in a business where you have essential workers that are, you know, um, in a high risk, high stress situations working. So those are all different ways that you can see it on a macro, more macro level and on a micro level. So just to look at, um, to, to, to kind of decipher where you're at, what's the pulse of the organization? And what do you have in place? And what are some of the things, like you said, what I often think is, what is it that they don't know that they don't know that they'll have to implement with time? Yeah. And I think that's going to be the new thing around strategy with uh, health and wellness is that, you know, employers have to be connected, um, so connected to themselves and their industry and their employees that they're going to have to develop things, I think, on the fly. So we had one um, last question, and um, this has been a fantastic conversation. And I know you and I, uh, we could talk about this probably all day long. But let's say an employer does their due diligence, right? They have, you know, created the physical safety. They, you know, they've, they've, you know, addressed the psychological need for safety and emotional safety. They put things in place. They've ensured their, you know, their managers are adept at meeting the needs of what the employee needs to do to return to work safely and the employee still just refuses yeah that's a very tricky one there's two things to that one of them and this is the one that we already kind of touched on is the idea that we don't have we're really in uncharted water you know, people for instance not wanting to come into work because they can't get to work safely that's one thing. And so the employer needs to think about how far 
is my need to accommodate for that person. The other thing is, of course, you know, mental health uh, is a shared and shared responsibility. So if I tell you, you know, I can't, I'm so anxious, I don't want to leave my house. Um, I don't want to come into the workplace because I'm afraid that if I touch something, I'm going to get sick. And you've now created a safe space for me and you can, you've documented that and you've demonstrated that within your capabilities and the parameters that are reasonable to expect from you, you've created a space where I can be safe and where the risk of my becoming infected in the workplace is almost zero. It's like very, and then I still say, but I'm so anxious, I don't want to leave the house. Then the employer does have the right to say, but what are you doing for yourself? Just being anxious is not enough. And at that point, it really is a shared responsibility where both work together and you can accommodate, you can provide resources. You can say, you know, here's somebody that you can talk to. I'm going to give you access for you to help you manage your stress and anxiety. And as, and potentially, and I used to do a lot of these, these manager consultations with um, people where managers really feel for the individual and they really go out of their way but where they, where they often struggle is to then hold that individual accountable because it can't come to the point where you say, okay, I need to prove, I need you to prove that you're actually um, you know, doing your bit to get up to productivity, to overcome this issue, whether it's a mental health issue, whether it's an anxiety issue, um, whether it's a, uh, you know, you're having issues at home and now you can't come to work or whatever. You need to under address the underlying root cause. I can do what I can do in the workplace and I can demonstrate that I've done that, but ultimately it's a shared responsibility between employer and employee um, to work together for that, to make that possible. So if the employee doesn't take uh, the initiative at that point, the employer has to decide what next steps they might need to, to, um, yeah. to deal with this, this situation effectively, which would make me progressive yeah. discipline, whatever. So well, it's about the, it's about the productivity, right? Ultimately, right. in the workplace, you're always still needing to look at how is this person working, functioning, and the contract and the expectations that I have of this person. What is the expected productivity? What is what is you know my what am I allowed to ask from this person? And if they're not meeting that standard of what I am legitimately allowed to ask from that person, I can accommodate to a certain point, but that all individual also needs to demonstrate that they're willing to do what they're what they need to do to be able to fulfill their part of the deal. Lorenzi, this has been a fantastic conversation and uh, I know I've, I've gained a lot and I'm sure everyone uh, listening has also gained a lot. And, um, you know, if, if people were wanting to reach out and to discuss uh, a bit more about um, strategy from, uh, you know, the standards and the perspectives and what exists, for them and they wanted to, to reach you, where, where could they reach you? Um, they can reach me at, uh, I'm on LinkedIn under my name, Rancio Mellis. You can also find me on my, my company website, which is uh, www.integralworkplacehealth.com. And uh, my email is uh, rmellis, R-M-E-L-L-E-S, all lowercase one word, at integralwh.com. Well, thank you so much again. And for everyone listening, um, as we step into this new phase, um, be conscious, um, you know, that there will be some need for change in reference to your strategy and to return to work policy. Look at what does exist and look at the gaps 
um, speak to people, have town halls, talk to your stakeholders, talk to your customers to ensure that you get the right strategies in place. And even if you put one strategy in place, ensure that it's a beginning point to address the concerns that you're finding. And for leaders, uh, the ones that are thinking, uh, well, I think I need to get more connected to myself in order to have those conversations. Uh, please connect with me uh, to do a coaching call so we can talk a little bit more about authentic leadership and what that takes to lead your teams. So again, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for being my first, uh, uh, my first live and for everyone that's attended. It's been fantastic. I've enjoyed uh, doing my podcast for two years and I look forward to a whole lot of other times when I can do more lives. Bye-bye, everyone. Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Durhage.